Welcome to Bread and Poppies, where we discuss why drugs are good, capitalism is bad, and what to do about it. Hi there, it's Hilary Agro here. I'm an anthropologist who studies drug use, drug policy, drug prohibition, and drug culture, and how all of those things interact with capitalism, racism, all the big bads of our society. Um, so welcome to Bread and Poppies. The first thing I want to say is that uh, Chuka Jekam, who was my co-host in the first episode, is actually no longer going to uh, be a regular part of the podcast. He just has too much on his plate um, right now. He's too much going on. So we'll see if he'll come back um, for guest segments in the future. But for now, it's basically just going to be me. I'm going to look for a new co-host in Toronto when I move there in the new year. But until then, I'm just going to play around with it, you know, on my own, try some different things, hopefully interview a few people pretty soon. I'm going to introduce a new segment called Drug of the Week. This week's Drug of the Week is ketamine. Ketamine, or K, don't call it Special K, nobody calls it that, is a dissociative, as well as some would argue a psychedelic. It's snorted in powder form, uh, which causes dosages for ketamine to be trickier than that of pills um, and some other drugs. It's not actually too difficult to take too much K if a person isn't paying attention. Uh, It's known among people who use it to enhance LSD and other psychedelics when mixed together, as well as nitrous oxide. What does ketamine do? Well, one of my favorite quotations from my master's research was uh, when a guy named George um, said this about ketamine. Stimulants bring you up, depressants bring you down, with ketamine, you go sideways. And I feel like this is a really accurate sort of description of ketamine. Because uh, ketamine's effects are kind of difficult to describe. Most people talk about, at least in the rave scene, talk about the effects that it has on the sounds and sensations of music. um, That that's the most enjoyable and desired part of the experience. I asked Brad, a DJ, and one of my research participants in Toronto about the insanely loud volume of music at raves, to the point where people need to wear earplugs. He contextualized it as part of the experience of having an altered consciousness, and he gave ketamine as an example. So what he said was, quote, the reason they leave the volume so high is because when you're in with a sound system where the bass moves your clothes, or you can feel it on your face, it's wonderful, especially when you're fucked up. Like, I don't know if you've ever been on ketamine, he asked me. <clears throat> Continuing the quote, but ketamine in the middle of a big sound system is like, it's heaven. It's heaven. What it does to music, because it's a dissociative, everything just kind of slows down and you can hear every note, you can feel every vibration. And when you're in the middle of a sound system, it's literally heaven. But in order to get sound that moves your clothes, yeah, they're going to be blasting it. And like to so many people, the sound system's volume level is a big part of the quality, which is crazy. End quote. So that's ketamine. Next week, we'll see what what the drug of the week will be. I'll use a quote from my research and talk a little bit about it. If you have a request, you can let me know on Twitter at Bread and Poppies. This week's capitalist of the week is Jeff Bezos. He continues to suck. In politics this week, it was the climate strike. 
on September 20th and 27th, and that whole week. It was in Vancouver on the 27th, and I went to the climate strike. I was super late to it because right as I was getting ready to leave, my baby decided that she needed to take a two-hour nap, um, and I was bringing her with me, so I didn't get there until the tail end of it, but you heard some audio from the strike at the beginning of the episode. It was really good. Protests are always great. I know that there are some issues with protests this big because they're usually not as sort of radical as they need to be considering how important the issues are. But I really recommend getting to any protest action that you can. It's really invigorating. It's really motivating. You meet other people who are feeling the same way as you, which is so important. I think that that's why a lot of us gravitate towards places like Twitter, because we're meeting other people who feel the same, uh, you know, sense of urgency and anger as we do. Meeting those people in person is even more crucial. And it's, it's more motivating and you get to actually talk to them and you get to be outside, you get to feel the air, you get to see people's signs, you get to feel this sensation that we can actually do something about the problems that we're facing right now. There, we have the numbers, we have the energy and the power, we just need enough people to reach a critical mass. So anytime you can go to a protest near you, just do it, um, regardless of, or, you know, regardless of whether it's you know, perfect, you can help to make it better. The biggest problem with the climate strike um, is that, at least in Canada, was that Trudeau joined it? Our, our Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, like literally the guy that we were protesting joined the protest and somehow didn't get tomatoes thrown at him the entire time. This is really the the essential part of why these protests aren't always as effective as they need to be is that, um, you know, the sort of uh, pussy hat type uh, centrist liberals who are who want to do the right thing and, and who are concerned about these things. I'm not going to sort of denigrate the action when they take it, but they just don't realize they they don't have a critique um, and an understanding of the way that power structures work. So the people who saw Trudeau at the climate strike and th thought, yeah, like, that's great. He's a part of it. He's, he's, you know, on our side. They don't get that he is in power and he is the person that we need to be fighting against, that we need to be pushing to enact policies that actually address the scale of the climate crisis. They just kind of don't have the sophistication of, of that kind of analysis of power. And so it's up to those of us who do to educate them and say, no, actually Trudeau is not on our side. He bought a pipeline and like he pays lip service to indigenous activists and then, you know, just completely ignores all of their requests for um, land sovereignty and uh, climate action. So we need to educate those people, but it, it does, you know, somebody on, on Twitter brought up the point that um, it's a clear sign that these protests are not challenging power enough. And what can we do in that case? Because we do need mass protests. Um, we do need strikes like this, but clearly it's not threatening enough to those in power. So we need to be listening to Indigenous activists. Those are the ones we need to listen to most of all. Um, we need to listen to black activists and people of color, people, the people who are most impacted by 
climate issues are the people that we need to be listening to. And there's been suggestions for a general strike. I totally support that. I don't um, personally like have much labor power because I'm on maternity leave technically and I'm a PhD student um, who's really in limbo as to where I'm sort of living and working right now. So I can't do much, but I bet you can if you're listening to this. Um, you can look into a general strike. You can talk to your friends and family and co-workers um, about what that would mean. Uh, and what different forms of action that will actually be effective would mean. But all that being said, protests are, it's a good way of embedding yourself in this form of collective action and, and effective change, you know, just being in this atmosphere and this environment where people care is really important. So I do still strongly support um, protests like this and um, the people who are organizing it. Because, I mean, even an imperfect protest is still a protest. So what else happened this week? Just a couple things from today and yesterday. Um, yesterday, Botham Jean, uh, Botham Jean's murderer, Amber Geiger, was actually convicted of murder. So this is um, the unarmed black... I mean, I shouldn't even say unarmed black man. He was... <laughs> He wasn't only unarmed, he was just in his own apartment. And Amber Geiger, who is a cop, broke into his apartment. Like, she just opened his apartment. She claims that she thought it was hers and shot him in cold blood. And this is a, a clearly really contentious case. It, it touches on a lot of issues of, of race and policing in the U.S. Um, this sort of idea that if a cop is scared in any way they have the right to murder somebody even if they're off duty and breaking into somebody else's apartment just because she apparently thought it was hers or at least that was her defense but if your first instinct is to just murder someone in cold blood because you're that terrified you shouldn't be a cop this is like you all of the cops that are murdering black people in cold blood, like, there's clearly a lot of issues that, that go along here. But even without looking at the racial aspects, if you're that afraid of people that you're just going to shoot first and ask questions later, you should not be a cop. I mean, nobody should be a cop, really, but that sh it shouldn't be an excuse because if you're that terrified then go work somewhere else where you're not handling guns and have the power of life and death. Anyways, usually cops in the, these cases, you know, they get on, they get put on paid leave and then there's maybe an internal investigation and they find that everything was fine. She was actually convicted um, by, luckily, or, well, not luckily, I'm sure, uh, that this, uh, the jury of color that convicted her was fought hard for, but she was actually convicted of murder. So we'll see what her actual sentencing is going to be. Uh, apparently it's between... She, she'll get something between 5 and 99 years, which is pretty, a pretty crazy, um, you know, potential uh, small amount that she could get. I think the odds are good that she'll get uh, a way smaller amount than she deserves. Although, I mean... Who knows? We all thought that she was going to get off, which is um, atrocious that our assumption was that she was not going to get convicted 
for this crime just because we know how the justice system works and how it's stacked against black people in the United States and uh, Canada as well and everywhere. But um, she was actually convicted. So she cried a bunch on the stand. She cried, you know, uh, white women's tears. They're a powerful thing. There's a poem that I uh, should have pulled up to read about the power of white women's tears. Um, They white women for centuries have used this idea of of their fear and their vulnerability to uh, harm people of color you know it's the same the women that call the cops on on black families just for barbecuing in a park because they feel that they have um, the absolute right to safety and security including just like the safety that they feel from not having to look at or hear people of color just living their lives um so but it's also been pointed out that amber geiger when she was on the stand she's you know very upset and she seems like she's bawling but there's no actual tears there so who knows? Um, but she deserved to go to prison. I'm a prison abolitionist, and I think there are really interesting conversations to be had about, you know, being a prison abolitionist who thinks that prison uh, is not the right solution uh, to crime, but also being happy when people like this go to prison. It's kind of a... It's, there's some cognitive dissonance there that we can unpack, but right now this is the system that we have, and in two bad choices, which is she goes to prison for the rest of her life and she gets off, this is the better choice. But um, I don't want to talk too much about this because I'll get really, really upset. Uh, it's, it's not okay that these things are happening. This is, it's not justice, it's accountability. It's not, we shouldn't have to feel relieved that this verdict happened because he should not have died in the first place. The last thing that I'll mention is the news that's out today that Bernie Sanders has been hospitalized. He had a procedure done on his heart and uh, he'll be okay. Uh, He's going to be okay. He is strong and it doesn't sound that serious. He's been working super hard and campaigning, doing like a hundred stops a day on his campaign So he'll be okay, but the news of this is striking fear into a lot of our hearts, which I think is understandable. He is human. He's mortal. Oh god, it's a reminder. It's it's actually a really crucial reminder, though, of why the movement um, that he is uh, the, the figurehead for right now, that he's spearheading, needs to outlast him and any other figurehead. We cannot defeat the powers of corporate interests and uh, corruption and, you know, big money by just following a leader. Uh, He himself has said that he doesn't just want to be the president, the commander-in-chief. He wants to be the organizer-in-chief of the U.S. He is trying to teach people that this movement has to be more than him. He calls it a political revolution, and I think that really gets at the heart of why I think that Bernie is the best candidate, as we talked about in the last episode. 
why, even though Warren has good policy ideas, she's still a capitalist at heart. She's still, she's, she's not leading a movement. She just wants to tweak capitalism. She wants to regulate it, but we don't have time for that. People's lives are at stake. Climate change gets worse every day that we don't take significant action to democratize the way our society functions and get big money and big power out of power. So this is a reminder that we can't just rely on Bernie. He's not going to be enough, even if he does become president. It's very scary to think about him being vulnerable. You know, he's not a young guy. But we need to continue this movement, whether or not he wins. And, you know, eventually when he dies, which is hopefully after eight years of being president. But regardless of that, when he dies, we, we can't let this movement you know, just fall apart. It has to be bigger than him and it has to outlast him. We can't, we, we, we need figureheads to inspire people. You know, uh, we have Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Rashida Tlaib and, uh, you know, Ilhan Omar and, and, um, Anna Presley and, and various other, and even in Canada we have, um, you know, various uh, politicians and figureheads like Nikki Ashton. She's uh, a great person in the NDP. Jagmeet Singh has a lot of potential. He uh, hasn't been quite as strongly against corporate interests as and, and sort of a, a motivator uh, as I would like. But, you know, we have some of these figureheads uh, all over and they're important but the movement cannot rely on them. So get well, Bernie. We, we He'll hopefully be fine and everything will be good. Um, this is understandably scary to hear about, but we need, we, we need, you know, we, we cannot be the liberals who put all their faith in people like Mueller and, you know, um, RGB, the... <laughs> Supreme Court resident 800-year-old woman that if she dies, it's going to affect millions of women's health care, potentially. Um, if she dies while Trump is in office, you know, we, we can't rely on single people because even if they're really great, you know, they die or they can disappoint us. So, but get well, Bernie. So what's going on in the world of drug policy this week? I want to talk soon, maybe next week, about um, the uh, various city councils uh, around the U.S. that are looking at uh, decriminalizing psychedelics, particularly mushrooms and uh, peyote, ayahuasca, and other, you know, quote-unquote natural psychedelics, because that's really important and it's happening. But um, some news actually came out of Vancouver Um a couple weeks ago that I wanted to talk about because I, I find it a very interesting story. So um, this was from reporting from Ash Kelly for City News 1130 in Vancouver. Um, and she did a great job reporting this. Uh, and what happened was on September 11th, the Vancouver City Council uh, actually debated and rejected a motion to prevent the sales of psychedelics in dispensaries. 
And this happened because more than a dozen people spoke against the motion. So what happened was uh, City Councilor Melissa de Genova, or Genova, I should know how to pronounce that, <laughs> I'm Italian, um, she wanted to have staff uh, for the city preemptively work with Vancouver Police and Vancouver Coastal Health on identifying the potential impacts uh, from that the sales of psychedelics at dispensaries could have to public safety, public health, and the annual operating budget. So I guess this is because dispensaries in Vancouver are thinking about starting to sell psychedelics, probably um, mushrooms would be my, my guess, um, the same way that they went ahead and just did that with cannabis, which is, um, you know, it's, it's an interesting thing because dispensaries are actually trying to, you know, they're, they're working outside of the law because they know that the law is wrong. They're saying people want cannabis, people are using it, we're going to sell it, we, we're not going to wait for the government to say this is okay because this is the right thing to do. Um, and so I guess they're thinking about doing that for psychedelics now too. Um, now there can be some, there could be some issues with that. Psychedelics shouldn't be sort of taken without, um, a lot of, uh, education beforehand on how to take them safely. They're, I mean, cannabis as well is a tricky one to just take, um, without knowing what you're doing or without knowing, knowing the dosing, but, um, mushrooms are even more difficult, um, and tricky in that way. However, um, we should have legal avenues to sell them anyway. So, um, anyways, so Melissa de Genova wanted to prevent this by, um, you know, condemning it and, and having the city investigate and to, uh, to, to look at working with police to sort of prevent this in the first place, which is not the right way to go about it. She said that she worried that, um, drug sales could have ties to money laundering, which, yeah, that's what happens when there's no legal market for an item. Like It's sold illegally and they have to launder the money somehow. That's why they should be legal. Um, and it's it's too bad because Melissa de Genova, um, she's the, actually the first millennial elected to the Vancouver City Council. So we need younger voices in there. She's, she says she's a feminist. That's great. But she's really wrong on this issue. Uh, mushrooms are not... <laughs> where city councils should be um, spending their efforts to try to enhance prohibition. Um, and the other thing that was really funny, and it's funny, but it's also frustrating because it just points to how she should not have taken on this issue at all, is she actually, she not only defended her motion by pointing to a report by Dr. Peter German or Hermann, on um, money laundering, but apparently at one point she said that Health Canada's website says that mushrooms are an injectable drug, which, I mean, <laughs> it's apparently everybody laughed when she said this, which is like, I I'm sorry, she earned that. Um, you can't inject mushrooms, you can't smoke them. Um, it's... Yeah, like, the, you can extract psilocybin in a lab and inject it, but, like, that's not, that's not, dispensaries aren't going to be selling injectable mushrooms. Like, that's ridiculous. Um, anyways, so that's unfortunate. However, here's the good news. More than a dozen speakers from the public spoke against the motion. Um, so, for example, Jennifer Cole, who's a member of the Squamish Nation, who lives in East Van, said that magic mushrooms give her relief from her debilitating illness after 35 years of suffering from cluster headaches. 
Um, quote, in November 2017, I took my first microdose and then everything changed, unquote. So, and, and she said that her neurologist is fully aware of and supportive of her microdosing mushrooms. Um, the only concern that her neurologist even told her was that he was unable to prescribe it to her um, because she can't get it prescribed anywhere. Um, which, yeah, it, there's, there's been evidence for years of mushrooms effectiveness on microdosing. It just hasn't, or sorry, on, um, on cluster headaches. But it just hasn't been able to be studied because of the moratorium on studying psychedelics, although we're, we're seeing that change now, which we'll talk about in future episodes. But, um, you know, even her neurologist knew uh, or had heard at least that this is a potential cure. And if you've been trying, if you've been suffering from something for 35 years and you find this cure, but it's illegal, like, what are you going to do? Of course, you're going to take it. Um and so uh, power to her for, for standing up in front of the council and, and sharing this. And she was one of, you know, um, a dozen uh, or more speakers who shared stories like this. Uh, there were also speaking were two members of MAPS, uh, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, um, the can Canadian, uh, you know, part of which is... Um, centered in Vancouver, there was a mycologist, or a person who studies mushrooms, a clinical therapist, an ex-heroin addict, and a person who described extensive childhood trauma. Um, and so all of these stories that they would have been telling about how psilocybin mushrooms can help with various things like not only cluster headaches, but depression, um, anxiety, um, I think suicidality, and end-of-life uh, anxiety, um, a whole bunch of things. Um, this actually reflects my own research as well. So, um, for my master's degree, I studied the use of, uh, psychedelics and other sort of party, party drugs in the rave scene in Toronto. And what I found was that, um, yes, psychedelics are absolutely used for partying. People use them to have fun and, and make, make connections with their friends and listen to music and, all sorts of good stuff, but um, they're also used uh, significantly both in music and dance contexts and um, and in other contexts as well um, as for personal healing and growth. And people, have, tons of people, have told me really profound stories about how psychedelics have helped them deal with you know lifelong traumas um, and uh, various mental health issues, or just helping them better themselves. Uh, you know, it, it doesn't always have to be really profound, transformative experiences that these substances can give you. Um, it can also just be, you know, that you learn about yourself and that you connect with other people in a way that you hadn't before. Um, and so there's, there's countless stories like that. And so it was great that uh, people were actually sharing these um, with the city council. There's a new documentary coming out soon called Dosed. Um, I'm hopefully going to go see it if I can uh, get a babysitter that night. Um, that's uh, about these exact issues. And apparently one of the producers, Tyler Chandler, was uh, was there at this meeting and he told the council about um, a friend of his who was one of the subjects of this documentary who has been off of opioids for 18 months after she began self-medicating with mushrooms. Um, and I think what's notable about the story that he told is he helped her access the drug. 
um, and said that it was uh, a little bit scary trying to navigate the black market market at first. Um, now, usually dealers, sellers who who sell mushrooms are not, um, you know, they're they're often um, sort of middle class dealers and people who work out of their homes and that kind of thing. Um, but if you want to access these things for a medical reason and you just have to, and you are not normally a person who buys drugs or has access to them, where do you go? Um, you know, and a lot of the time, like most of the time people go through their friends, like most drug dealing, quote unquote, that happens is actually people just getting drugs from friends and friends of friends, because that's how you basically how you have to do it, um, to get it safely. This is at least off of the street, um, but even on in street-involved drug transactions, usually people are uh, friends or acquaintances with their dealers. Um, so it, it really brings up a question of, you know, looking at um, how we destigmatize the, the act of selling a drug or providing somebody with a drug too, because a lot of people are on board now with oh, we need to decriminalize, it's not drug users' fault, or, you know, they either, they go the sort of, like, their their victims' approach, like, people are addicted and that's not their fault, and they shouldn't go to jail for, for being addicted to a drug, which is absolutely true, but it doesn't reflect the majority of um, drug use that we, illegal drug use that we see. Most people are not addicted, most people are just recreational users, and they get their drugs from their friends, so does that make all of their friends who, you know, provide them with a, a quarter ounce of mushrooms. Are they a drug dealer now? Um, for the people that think that we should decriminalize drug uh, consumption and possession, but not sales, and, and blankets say, oh no, drug users are victims, but drug dealers are bad. We need to complicate this no- notion of who is a drug seller or dealer. I try to use the word seller because dealer is, is highly stigmatized, um, but obviously it slips out a lot. So DeGeneva responded to all this saying that, you know, I'm not saying that there aren't health benefits, but perhaps they just haven't been discovered or reported on yet. Um, That was a direct quote from her. And yes, they have. (laughs) I mean, obviously, most of the psychedelic studies that are happening right now are in sort of phase two and phase three clinical trials. But the evidence is very strong from those clinical trials. Um, there's already evidence from the 50s when these substances were originally studied, um, a lot of which happened uh, here in Canada and Saskatchewan, interestingly, um, which I can go into in a future episode. Um, but the other thing is just that, uh, and, and it's something that I would like to figure out with my PhD re- research, um, it's something I argued for in my master's research, is how under a biomedical paradigm where we need to have um, scientific evidence for everything, which is important. Um, but the, the flip side of requiring really strict, rigorous scientific evidence for everything is that the tons and tons of anecdotal evidence that we have from millions of people who use drugs, not to mention, um, indigenous groups who have been using these substances for thousands of years and have, you know, um, long, long established, uh, rituals and, and religious, um, significance and practices behind these drugs. Um, how do we value those experiences? How do we value, um, anecdotal experiences without dismissing them as just anecdotal? 
because it's people's lived experience. It's not just random anecdotes. We have, um, you know, thousands and thousands of uh, entries on the Arrowhead um, archives. Arrowhead's a website that um, aggregates people's uh, drug experiences that they write up and also has other information about drugs. Uh, you know, in, in my own research, I documented um, dozens and dozens of stories. They're, they're, the stories are out there. They're super compelling. Um, but if we're not valuing the experiences of drug users, then how do we collect this information and use it um, to support what almost anyone who's used psychedelics knows about psychedelics, which is that they're good they are mostly, um, like, the vast majority of psychedelic experiences are positive. There are some negative experiences, but that doesn't negate um, how powerful um, and positive these substances can be. So how do, we, how do we discuss the importance of these other experiences outside of the scientific paradigm um, without devaluing the, the science that is done and that needs to be done? Um, this is sort of like, this is an anthropologist. Uh, it's a big question for anthropologists because that's kind of what we do. We, we do social science, um, we do ethnography, we talk to people, we hear their experiences. And the way that ethnography and anthropology is done is quite rigorous, but it's dismissed by a lot of people who are really, really stuck on the biomedical paradigm as, you know, just stories. But um, stories are important. Stories are are what make us human and when you have thousands and thousands of people saying the same thing about these substances but they're they're running up against you know these structures of prohibition and anti-drug stigma that um that tell your average person that no anyone who uses illegal drugs doesn't know what they're talking about they're an addict well you know they it just they're our, our voices as people who use illegal drugs are completely discounted um, and so, yeah, how do we reconcile these things? It's something to think about. But overall, uh, this case was a win, which was really nice to see. Um, and I'm hoping to talk more about wins than, than losses, because, you know, for every win like this we have, you know, how many <laughs> hundreds of people were arrested um, on the same day for having mushrooms or cannabis or whatever in their pocket and being the wrong skin color around cops. Um, but it does show what happens when people who use drugs show up and make their case. Um, we need more people like, um, you know, people from MAPS and, and documentary producers and, you know, sort of middle class, respectable people um, making this case to other middle class, respectable people who don't um, unfortunately listen to the people that they should be listening to, people who have the most lived experiences, which are um, you know, drug user groups for, that represent people who use drugs every day, um, such as Vandu, the Vancouver Area Network of Drug Users, um, and other groups. Um, we need, but we need people from everywhere to be uh, standing up and making their voices heard, um, because we have the facts and we have mountains of compelling stories of the positive impacts of certain drugs on our side. So that's it for Bread and Poppies this week. I hope you enjoyed it. Thanks for listening. Thanks for bearing with the fact that I have clearly discovered how to add sound effects and am amusing the hell out of myself with them. 
Um, I have a Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash Hillary Agro. That's Hillary with one L, unlike the other Hillary who spells it incorrectly. Um, but the Patreon is mostly just to support my PhD research, um, as well as to fundraise for an educational video project I'd eventually like to start. Mm, infotainment, I love it. But it, it exists, so might as well um, say it, and I appreciate everybody who uh, supports my work. As well, I'm an ethnographer. I just want to say that I, I love hearing people's experiences with drugs, both positive and negative. And I am, you know, getting back into my active sort of research and data collection mode. So if you'd like to share your experiences with drugs, um, people, especially uh, psychedelics, are, are one that people have always really interesting stories about. But um, basically anything, feel free to send me a message on Twitter at Hillary Agro or on Reddit. My username is Drug Educator. If you want to remain anonymous, you can just tell me about your friends' experiences. I won't really be able to respond very much um, uh, because I'm very busy with my baby and my PhD research right now, but I promise I'll read every word um, and I really appreciate uh, the experiences that people have shared with me over the years. It really helps to inform my research and I will let you know that I've received it and read it. So thanks very much and we'll talk next week.